The parable of the dishonest manager, as it is often called, is disarming. Because Jesus tells a parable to the disciples to ostensibly, but also explicitly, praise the actions of someone who acted in deceit for apparent self-interest. After being faced with the prospect of unemployment after his own questionable actions, this property manager realized that he would need to curry favor with someone to prevent homelessness and destitution. So he went to his master's debtors and cut their debts in half. That was his plan, both saving them money and securing a good reputation among them so that if perhaps he faced difficulty, they would welcome him into their homes and give him work and ensure his survival. In an unexpected twist, Jesus commends the manager for his cleverness. Make friends through dishonest wealth. Because yes, it may have been dishonest, but God looked with favor upon the actions anyway. And this is baffling until we zoom out, right? We return to all the times in the Hebrew scriptures in which God is seen favoring tricksters those who are cunning and deceptive in pursuit of their survival. Israel, the ancient people chosen by God, was always the underdog. Israel as a people would never have been without divine favor, and yet they were oppressed, exiled, divided, bitterly split. This trickster-like character is projected onto both God and the Hebrew people, by the creators of the stories of the Torah and beyond. Because the underdog needs to be cunning in order to survive, right? Perhaps the underdog cannot play by the rules. Let's remember Jacob, perhaps the trickiest of all, who tricked his twin Esau out of his birthright and blessing by dressing up in a wolf's outfit. Or Tamar, who exposed the hypocrisy of Judah through a trick or the midwives Shifra and Pua who hid firstborn Hebrew sons from Pharaoh's extermination, or Ruth whose plan with Naomi was able to achieve stability for her family, even Jezebel, even Jael. Jael's the woman who stabbed a man with a tent bag. Esther saved the Hebrew people through a trick. Rahab allowed Israel to defeat Canaan through a trick. Not only does God apparently co-sign all of these deceptions, but it also appears that God is an intimate and active agent in the deception itself. It is a common theme in our scriptures, deception. Because ancient Israel had to be cunning to survive, to survive against every effort to destroy her. Her identity as a scrappy underdog, protected by God who promised to love and protect her forever, is critical to the Jewish identity, even today, and most certainly at the time of Christ's ministry. At that time, the Jewish people were brutally oppressed inside an incredibly powerful empire. Even further, there were those within their community who seemed intent on collaborating with Rome to further oppress the poor and marginalized. So this parable, this confusing parable, 
The context in which Jesus lived was actually the perfect stage in which to resurrect a sense of hope, a callback to those times where, though deceitful, Israel had a chance. There were probably people there who had very little of that hope. And so why are we surprised that Jesus would commend the shifty behavior of a person trying to achieve security? This brings us to Luke's constant exhortation on behalf of the poor, the underdogs. Earlier this year, I mentioned that Luke's unabashed preference for the poor is not something for us to spiritualize, to make ourselves more comfortable, but it is an important consideration in the ways in which we live out the gospel. How do we treat the poor? And how do we pass judgment on the poor? What are the standards of conduct and morality that we place on people who are victims of exploitation or just plain cruelty and indifference? These are important questions, not just because Jesus asks us to ask them, but because the answers also inform how we treat ourselves when we struggle, whether it's our fault or not. So I think it would be wrong to be hyper-focused on ethics and morality of what this manager in the parable did, or his motives or methods. Instead, I want to take our strong desire to identify God with absolutes, right, and our confusion at Christ's praise, to expand our points of view to the entire story of God's people. When we do that, we see it differently. While the parables do not necessarily have to have a Christ stand-in, the language plays with the word Lord to potentially suggest that the Lord of the property, the owner, and the Lord, Christ, are one and the same. So if the Christ stand-in in this parable is the owner of the property, the man who gives the manager a way out despite losing everything, At the end of the day, he accepts the fact that the big loser in this economic scheme is him. Christ is okay being the only loser, the one who takes on loss and pain for us. Christ says, if someone must be cheated, let it be me. If someone must be thrown out, let it be me. If someone must lose, let it be me. And if someone must judge, let that be me too. There are countless times in Judeo-Christian history in which the beloved people of God worshipped idols, disobeyed God's commandments, or lapsed into behavior that Amos describes rather polemically, those who trample on the needy and bring ruin to the poor of the land. As Amos says, or God says through Amos, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Some of the strongest language that God speaks often through the prophets is so polemic. You might wonder how or if God could ever continue to favor Israel, but God does always, always. The big lesson for us, I think, is to challenge the ways in which we judge ourselves and others, 
to perhaps turn our expectations for others upside down just to see what we learn. Perhaps those questions are abstract, like, is violence ever justified? And sometimes they're more concrete. Is it okay to steal a loaf of bread to feed your family? To ask, what is permissible in the sight of God? Now, there absolutely is a moral standard that God holds for us. I believe it is situational, and I believe that it is always, always giving preference to those who are exploited, the poor and lonely, the sick and dying, those who have nothing and no one. God is also always giving tools to allow those people to live, to survive, to empower themselves, a way out for those on the margins. That's what God did for Israel countless times. So rethinking absolute morality, what we think are definite wrongs and definite rights, in order to favor the marginalized, that is what I get from this baffling parable, especially by placing it within the larger narrative of Israel's story. One cannot serve God and wealth, but one can serve God and the poor. How we use our wealth and possessions to do so is up to us and to God, but if they ever preference the rich instead of the poor, we must interrogate it carefully. Even Jacob, perhaps our trickiest ancestor, said, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. Then the Lord shall be my God, and all that you give me, I will surely give one-tenth to you. Our survival depends not just on one another's toil, but on God's consistent love for us, no matter what it is that we do or how we do it. In return, we give back. We lay all of our wayward ways on Christ. If anyone should be cast out, let it be me, Jesus says. In the name of God.